0: The start on demand. on demand hey it's brad it's the thursday edition of the podcast for the start with mackling mcgarry and mcnab jam-packed show today so much stuff we want to share with you we had a conversation with mayor brian bowman tax breaks for true north square it's been a controversial topic we will ask him about that christian omel One of his favorite things of the year is when the Toy Hall of Fame nominees are announced. He put together a hilarious little package that we want to share with you. Liquor store theft. We're hearing there is a ton of theft happening in Manitoba's liquor stores. And they basically can't do anything about it. Even though they've got security guards. What should they do? Norwood pool. We're going to hear from the chairwoman from Save Norwood Pool. They cleared a major hurdle at City Hall this week. Loren McNabb will have a chat with a family in Southdale that nearly lost everything after a devastating fire nearly three weeks ago. We'll go to Humboldt. The home opener was last night in the SJHL for the Humboldt Broncos. Packed house, standing room only. We will hear from the father of one of the young men who lost his life in that tragic crash many months ago. And finally, controversy over yoga pants in Wisconsin schools. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb... And the mayor, Mayor Brian Bowman, is here. As a busy week at City Hall as members of the mayor's inner circle voted on a number of issues. First of all, good morning,
1: Mr. Good mayor. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Very well. Good. Thanks for visiting
0: us a little earlier than usual.
1: <laughs> that's Just, okay. I've been up since 445, so... That's all nothing. Good. We're up yeah. at 2.30. Yeah, what time? 2.30. <laughs> okay, you win. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you'd win in most rooms Bear yeah. moment but yeah, this exactly. one that's a non-starter
3: <laughs>
4: no, <laughs> so
1: that's you slept in yeah. today and there's only one Timmy's here so. <laughs> that's right yeah.
3: no these guys don't drink coffee yeah, but
1: we're weird that way you need a lot that's of coffee for City yeah. Hall
3: this week because there's lots going on yeah. there
1: yeah a couple well, cups in the morning and then.
3: one of the big yeah. things we've been talking about is the tax breaks of course for Trunor mm-hmm. Square yeah. the province announced some earlier this week more are on the table from City Hall including some for the residential towers and the hotel going up there um, kind of want to follow the money Trail. I don't think anyone's disputing that the True North is a fabulous yeah. project, and what's going up there is great. Mm-hmm. But the amount that the city is contributing keeps rising. I think from 11 to what could potentially be 28 yeah. million. Yeah. And people are wondering why do we continue to give these tax breaks instead of taking some revenue and putting it to things that are really badly yeah. needed.
1: Well, and and uh, the principle with TIFs. I mean, that you have to read the report, of course, and it's they they are they are not simple uh, reports when you when you read them. But the thing with the the TIFs is. This is uh, taxes that will ultimately be generated for the city of Winnipeg. So you've got over a billion dollar or half a billion dollar project that when completed will, and when the TIFs are completed, will generate significant tax dollars for the city of Winnipeg. The thing for me that's been really important is uh, we're partnering with the province and uh, the province of Manitoba and the city of Winnipeg historically have uh, undertaken TIF funding for projects on a 50-50 basis. What happened earlier this week is we received formal requests from the province uh, that they were going to be supporting it through TIF funding. And there was a request to the city of Winnipeg to essentially do the same thing, to match and to provide that funding so that we could truly partner with True North Square to support this. The thing for me that's been really important um, from, from day one is the, the hotel connected to the convention center because previous mayor and council had set up a loan guarantee to the convention center uh, at, a, at about $16 million. And so that's on the books for for taxpayers. And part of the convention center's business plans really hinge on the issue of getting a hotel that's connected so that we can fully realize the investment that taxpayers have already made in an expanded and newly renovated convention center. And so getting the hotel is, is key. Getting more residents in downtown and two towers now is also key for downtown. And what we're seeing and what we're hearing from our property and development director is that it is already creating a lift to the properties in the surrounding area and to downtown in general. But so when, wouldn't
3: these projects be built without giving them the tax breaks? I mean, do we need to continue to give more? Their, it's already going up. It's yeah. happening. And now we're putting more money on the table instead of putting into other things. We've got a meth crisis in the city and all the, and all the rest. I mean, do we do we need to be giving well, this and, to and, them?
1: And when you talk about meth and you talk about other things that the city needs in terms of revenues, and, and same with the province, let's keep in mind this is going to generate $59 million in per provincial taxes when this is built out. so uh, the province is is definitely benefiting significantly from from this uh, from this investment. but uh, that's why we need to have uh, more properties downtown. We need to have that density and we need to have people on the ground walking and living in downtown Winnipeg. and so, this is all part of that vision of building that density downtown and generating more taxes in the long run. Keep in mind, TIFs isn't, it's not like the city is, is is pulling out a check and saying, here you go. This is money that would be generated in the short term from those taxes being reinvested in the public plaza and other amenities. And then that runs out after a certain time frame. So we're not taking from, you know, general mill rate support from, from property taxpayers right now uh, to invest. We're actually just... Reinvesting the taxes that uh, would otherwise be coming in for this project. And it's a model that's been used to build up downtown over many, many years on a number of projects.
2: So, Mayor Bowman, help us understand the the moving target that this seems to be, because it feels as though we had an agreement or there was an agreement in place for a certain amount of this money to go to public amenities, the improvements, and if I understand it correctly, in fact, the boundaries of the shed district are being redrawn to accommodate this change, or is that accurate? Help us suss that out. And then the other question I want to ask you, is it time to look at this 10% threshold in terms of affordable housing that seems to be being ignored and being waived for this project, is it time to eliminate that stipulation for programs and for agreements like this one?
1: Well, I think the TIF, I mean, I, I think the broader question is um, uh, where is it appropriate to, to do TIFs and, uh, and 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 has that time run out for downtown? Have we reached that critical mass? I, I'm, I'm not convinced we we have been, but... It is something that we we are and will need to take a critical look at in terms of where is downtown right now and what are the types of projects that wouldn't had it not been for TIFs would not otherwise uh, occur. And right now, the construction on two twenty Carlton. So this is the Sutton uh, residential tower and the hotel. Uh, they are interconnected, of course, to the True North Square two twenty five, which is being built right now. And they are they part of that. It was contingent upon getting the the TIF funding for from the province, and the province, of course, requested us to match them halfway, like we've done. And the city has done, you know, well before my time. In is Memphis. this
2: why we haven't seen shovels in the ground at this point? Is
1: this, um, is this that been... that would be a question for True North. I would suspect that is the case. And so, uh, right now, uh, you know, Monday we get the the formal request in the province. Our our officials have been in dialogue with provincial officials for some time. The formal request came in. And uh, and we we learned okay they're they're in for the TIF funding for sure now on uh, on Monday.
2: What about that ten percent qualification yeah. with regard to affordable hu- housing? Why do you think it's appropriate to waive it for this project and and maybe not others? And is it time to eliminate that altogether? Um,
1: I'm not convinced. I mean, I think the more we can do on on uh, affordable housing, we, there's still a lot more we need to do, and a lot of my uh, personal. Uh, uh, efforts have been directed at the uh, federal level for the national housing strategy. So this is, a, I think, a $40 billion project that's as a result of lobbying by Canada's big city mayors. And so the federal government has stepped up in a significant way. Um, this project uh, is a half a billion dollar project. I mean, while the model that's being followed uh, based on the provincial request is that 50-50 split to support uh, uh, a development, let's keep in mind this is a half a billion dollar project. We haven't seen anything like this. Ever in Winnipeg, and to have a mixed use right in the heart of downtown, this was a surface. This was a surface parking lot. Keep in mind, 225, um, you know, um, was was a surface parking lot for as long as I can remember. And uh, that surface parking lot is gone, and it's being replaced with people that are living, that are working, and that are coming out for entertainment there. So. It's a worthy project of support for sure.
3: Aren't you worried it's a slippery slope, though? I mean, what, if I'm another developer out there and I, I had to put in the 10 percent of my residential unit to affordable housing, now this project doesn't have to. I mean, it doesn't, A, it doesn't seem fair and it's almost a double standard. It just depends on how big I am, how much money I'm spending, that we would waive certain things for one and not the other.
1: Well, I can tell you if somebody else has half a billion dollars out there and wants to come forward to invest in uh, job creation and uh, building a, a downtown that's more vibrant and more livable, uh, I'm going to look at it and I'm going to do whatever I can in a common sense way to work with the province of Manitoba to get it built. And and that's something that I think all Winnipegers should expect of their mayor and council is that we're going to show some common sense and support the development of downtown Winnipeg. And we now have 17,000 people living in downtown Winnipeg for the first time in our history. And... Um, That's something I'm very proud of, and it's helping improve downtown. There's still more work to do, though.
0: We have 30 seconds left. Garbage Hill.
1: we Are going to get a sign? (laughs) So I heard that the Garbage Hill sign was made out of drywall, so I don't think it would have survived last (laughs) night.
3: Nope. You know,
1: uh, so I I heard about this. I heard about this in the evening after it had been up for uh, apparently some time and then removed by city crews, which— I can only imagine they were simply doing their jobs. I want to hear from the person or the people that built it so that we can see how we can get it back up. I mean, probably want to do something that's a little better than drywall uh, so that it can survive rain and and winter. But, um, you know, if, if whoever's listening right now, if they were responsible for building it, uh, reach out to City Hall. Reach out to my office, and, and let's chat to see how we do it within the within the rules. And 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 I I'd like to see it back up. So
3: obviously you're proud. I mean, there was the debate: of, should we be yeah. proud of Garbage Hill, or should we? Be... Oh, it's just
1: fun. It's <laughs> just fun. I mean, I look. I mean, uh, you know, I I, I tongue in cheek tweeted out the other day: our our, our Hollywood Mountain on the Prairies. <laughs> it, it was intended is just just show we can have some fun in the city once in a while. And and Garbage Hill is a hill that I've spent time running up. Uh, I know my wife runs there regularly when she's doing hill training. And um, uh, whoever did it, I think, has a great sense of humor, and I want to commend them. I don't know if it was one of you, but
2: uh, no, we'll my favorite time goes anything. only so far. And if I had built the sign, it just would have said the dump. So.
0: <laughs> Mayor Brian Bowman, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks. Always
1: hope, hope to see you guys out at the launch tonight five five forty five at the convention center for the official launch. So hopefully, I'll we'll see you guys there.
3: Campa- yeah. Campaigns underway.
1: Absolutely.
0: It's a time of year again. The finalists for induction into the Toy Hall of Fame have been announced. The Strong Museum in Rochester, New York puts out the list of a dozen finalists every September, with a handful earning a spot in Toy Immortality. Or should it be Immortoility? Global news reporter Christian O'Mell breaks down this year's potential honorees.
5: Since the Hall of Fame opened in 1998, a total of 65 classic toys have been honoured. The nominees are based on public submissions before an expert panel, including Museum of Play curator Nicholas Ricketts, Selects the inductees.
6: We all have to bone up on the history of each one of them, and that's uh, one of the really fun parts of our job.
5: If you don't remember, last year's winners were Clue, the paper airplane, and the wiffle ball. So let's open up the toy trunk and see what we find this year.
0: We're going up on the ladder.
5: We didn't have this most basic board game growing up.
6: It's been a steady seller and very popular. Any game that's easy for really young kids and toddlers to understand. Apparently,
5: there were moral lessons in this game at one point. The ladders were virtues and the snakes were vices. germ, I guess.
2: Oh, oh, oh.
5: The Magic Eight Ball is a seven time finalist used by kids to get answers to life's biggest questions. Does he like me? Will I ever be popular? Am I going to pass this test? Shake the ball? Oh, look, not so good. What about the Eight Ball's chances this year?
6: The prospect looks good.
5: How is pinball not in already?
6: I'm a big fan of pinball. It's been a finalist two times. It will definitely get into the Toy Hall of Fame someday.
5: Well, that's reassuring. Pinball also expired what I think is the greatest computer game of all time. Chalk, a three-time finalist. It's still used in classrooms on sidewalks, and it's all over your hands, and then you touch your shirt, and everything is covered in chalk. But chalk's awesome, and it's been around forever.
6: They've actually discovered cave paintings that were done with chalk. What were you gonna do with chalk? Play tic-tac-toe. I don't
5: really play no tic-tac-toe. Not technically a toy, but it's a game and that counts.
6: It's really surprising that's not in.
5: There are three results to tic-tac-toe. You win, you tie, or you feel really dumb for missing something obvious and lost. And there you can American Girl dolls were introduced in the 80s, and they're still around today, complete with a hefty price tag and a backstory.
6: Part of their purpose is to inspire girls to do well, like so many of the girls in the American Girl stories. But dang,
5: is that inspiration expensive. Luciana doll and book 115 bucks, are you crazy? he Patel's toy version of the Super jacked He-Man, based on the Masters of the Universe cartoon of the mid-80s.
6: Younger children, especially boys at first, but it encouraged that whole fantasy element. I have
1: the power! Now is the time for fun with Uno!
6: Uno was fun. Uno was a simplified Crazy Eight so that younger kids could play it, but still interesting enough so that adults could enjoy it. Sort of hit a real good spot.
5: And when you play that pick up four card, you make an enemy for life. I remember this one vividly. The Fisher Price Corn Popper. A seemingly pointless device you pushed around and amused the heck out of you as a wee lad.
6: Originally meant to help with walking skills and learning coordination. It's got that learning and discovery element to
5: it. Great memories, but I don't like its chances to get in. Another long shot, Tudors electric football operates by means of an electromagnetic motor causing the playing field to vibrate. Very popular in the 60s, but apparently it's making a comeback.
6: There's a whole group of I think they're called basement coaches that still play the game and they're very serious about it and they have on um, tournaments.
5: I guess they have video game tournaments, so Check them, I Tickle Me Elmo turned the 96 holiday season into a shopping mall blood sport.
6: They tried to keep it under wraps at first, but somehow the news got out and it got some press. And after that, yeah, it was crazy. The stores were mobbed. Your kid Elmo is either
5: an interactive pal or the stuff of nightmares.
7: Letting down the hate. The
5: final nominee, a staple of Canadian winters, The Sled.
6: Some people argue that, well, it doesn't apply to the Deep South. I think it's a classic toy. Who
5: can forget sliding down hills? Yay! And then having to trudge it back up that hill. Ugh. If it were up to me, it'd be Pinball, Chalk, and The Sled. Pick your favorites and wait until November 8th when the class of 2018 will be unveiled. Christian O'Mell, Global News.
0: I got to thank Christian for <laughs> for being brave enough to say I have the power after the <laughs> He-Man stuff. He just went for it there. Love hearing that theme song. He used to love He-Man toys. And uh, just a very quick, funny story was uh, at the day sitter, at our babysitters during the day, during, I guess, kindergarten. And I had all my Masters of the Universe toys. And uh, one of the other kids who was there, this baby, crawled over. So I kind of wrapped my legs around the toys to set up this barrier because I didn't want the baby to play with the toys. But one of the legs was sticking out underneath my leg. And I don't know if you either of you are familiar with the He-Man toys, but they had this, like, rubber band in the middle, in the waist. Right. That held them together. Right. So this baby grabs onto the leg and... Yanks on it and snaps this toy in half, and it was He-Man! It was the master of the universe! No! Wrecked my He-Man toy. No. So, I didn't like that kid after that. A problem we're going to start with that we've been talking about on CJOB for a few weeks now.
3: Yeah, that's the thefts or rising thefts really at Manitoba's liquor stores. Then this week Winnipeg police revealed there have been 1300 reports of thefts of liquor at liquor stores so far this year. The problem's so bad that staff including security staff at stores have been instructed not to physically intervene. Andrea Cole is with Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries. The security guards, and actually not just the security guards, security guards and staff are trained to 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 discourage and deter theft. So they will stay close to someone who they think may be about to to steal something or someone who may have concealed something in their clothing. They will actually speak to them and say, are you paying for that bottle? Those are the methods that we use as far as intervention goes. But as far as physical intervention goes, we know that about a week and a half ago, the police clearly demonstrated by sharing that as soon as there's any sort of physical intervention or threat to these criminals, that it quickly escalates and becomes dangerous for customers and staff. So far, the thefts have cost liquor and lotteries more than $1 million per year. And while images, uh, images of these criminals captured on security cameras have led to several arrests, actually a couple were arrested just this week, the union representing staff, MGEU, says they're worried it will now grow worse. I do know that the uh, MBLL has definitely uh, said that it is the safety of the public and our members, their employees, first and foremost. It is not about saving the bottle. Uh, you know, so they their instruction is that, uh, you know, they need to be safe and make sure the public is safe and keep themselves
7: out of harm's way. You know, our members are concerned that this is actually out there in the media. They feel that this has put a much bigger target on their back. You know, people think they can just walk into any liquor store and
3: walk out. And, uh, you know, it puts our members at risk. It puts the public at risk. And it raises, she raises some good points there about just opening up the dis- discussion and the idea. And we've even had people say, well, we're now telling people that they can do this, but from the union's perspective, I, I they want to talk to liquor and lotteries and resolve this first, and I doubt they wanted to have this become public, but it is public now, and it's a growing problem.
2: Well, you, you could certainly try your hand at it, but they're going to have a high-resolution image of you, either video-wise or in a still photo. Uh, liquor stores are full of cameras. I don't know how different this is in terms of the ratio of 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 leakage as they call it in the retail industry uh, for shoplifting we know that's a gigantic problem we pay for that uh, in all the retail pricing that we pay because there's a certain percentage of product that walks out of every single type of retail location i don't know why we would expect that things would be any different at a liquor store i, I guess i'm kind of confused as to why this has turned into such a big deal. Like I said, you can go to any store in the mall right next to us and have a conversation and their percentages are going to be very similar to what the liquor outlets are experiencing right now. They face the same challenges in terms of, you can't touch these people. You know, you can tell them to stop. You can try and get them to do the right thing and turn around, which is the approach that we understand that the security guards are taking. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of baffled as to why this is a bigger story because it's because it's liquor versus any other commodity.
3: Well, I think some of the questions have been why aren't we stopping the thieves or, or, or could the security guards be doing more? The security guards are not represented by MGEU um, and they're not at every store. And we've put calls out this morning to... Uh, the different companies in charge of some of these security guards to see if we can get some answers in terms of just instructions there, what the difference is. I did look it up last night when this became a debate. You know, some of these security guards are paid $18 an hour. Well, they're not police officers. And and they're not police officers. And you do have that whole challenge now of what are their rates? Are they allowed to put their hands on someone and and grab them, you know, throw them to the ground, they don't have handcuffs. I mean, what, what are what is the role of that security guard really? What powers do they have? Should something be done politically to change what they are able to do, potentially, if we are really concerned about this? Uh, a lot of questions, I think, this morning.
2: Well, uh, you know, I grew up in an era where nightclubs were popular entertainment. They're not as nearly as popular for people to visit uh, as they were, Brett, when you and I were in our 20s and uh, we all know stories and maybe all of us witnessed security guards at nightclubs going too far and, you know, kind of uh, using what authority they believe they had. We've had situations where patrons were seriously injured by security individuals at nightclubs. So um, there's a real fine line here. That's a great point. Why are security guards at nightclubs allowed
0: to physically remove you from an establishment, but in a retail outlet, they're not. And it, this just reminds me, and this is my experience in retail. I think I've told you this story before, Greg, but, uh, Lorena, I used to work in, like, 1996-ish, uh, 7. I can't remember exactly when. Around then. I worked in Jersey City. Do you remember Jersey City on the second floor at Polo Park? Mm-hmm. GNC is now yep. there, the General Nutrition Center. But it was, Jersey City's now on the first floor. I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's even the same company. It was, the store had the big blue bomber helmet over top of the counter. So it it typically wasn't a very busy store, you know, it was a kind of a specialty place. We had jerseys for, uh, I think it was the IHL at the time, when the Manitoba Moose were in that. And in the back of the store, on the the back right, we had uh, the Lady Liberty Wayne Gretzky New York Rangers jersey. Do you remember that, Greg? Of course I do. We had it on a display, on like a mannequin sort of, and it was, you know, a specialty item, was a high, high, like a high priced item. And one day there were two of us working in the store, it was me and this guy Glenn, and he went to get himself some lunch, comes back, he's eating in the back, and for whatever reason we got this rush of customers, suddenly there were six, seven, eight customers, not a lot, but in a small store, when everyone's looking around and you're just by yourself behind the counter, you want to make sure nothing gets stolen, and there was a guy who came in who was suspected of stealing from us, he looked kind of like Joe Dirt. Hmm. Like David Spade and Joe Dirt. So anyway, when as soon as he came in, I ran to the back and said, Glenn, I need you to come out here because I think some, something's going to get stolen. And sure enough, after he left, I looked b- to the back and the jersey was gone. And I chased him through the mall. I couldn't do anything, but I just wanted to let him know, like, if you do not come back to our store, you are not welcome. I know what you did.
3: Well, we just had a listener text in saying he was a security guard years ago and back then you could grab people and now everyone's worried about lawsuits and protecting right. yourself and all the rest. And, and so you chasing that thief through the mall. I don't. Maybe that even wouldn't happen today. And then there's strength in numbers. Like sometimes there's only one security guard at a store, or there isn't isn't one at all. So you're alone, and you're thinking it's me versus two, me versus three. Uh, wh- where's the balance there?
2: Well, the balance is at some point uh, the corporation in question, whether it's liquor and lotteries or whether it's any retailer, has to weigh out something intrusive like. Do you want an armed guard in every store? Because I've been to countries and I've been to stores, or in Mexico in particular, right, where what? they have armed guards out front. Is that what
3: we want? Well, what are we saying when they can't even put a hand on someone either? Though, I mean, what's the point?
2: I think uh, all of us would like to have a swimming pool in the backyard or at least one in the community. I know that when I was younger, the community pool was salvation because you can only run through the sprinkler so many times. And whether it was a wading pool or one of the larger pools in our community, indoor pool, Sergeant Park Pool was uh, three blocks from my house. We would go there in the summertime. Winnipeg blessed with a lot of park space, but some of the infrastructure within those parks and some of the recreation infrastructure in our community, Lorraine, is aging and it's aging Badly,
3: It's aging badly, and that's the case in the Norwood neighborhood where the city actually had a report this week suggesting they should shut that pool down because underwater water Underground water was leaching into the pool, potentially interfering with the water quality. Now, good news, officials are saying that they're going to work with residents there, hope to, to find a longer-term solution rather than shutting that pool down. But it speaks to a bigger issue of crumbling infrastructure in our city. Monique Lacoste is with the Save Norwood Pool Communities and is in studio with us. Thank you for being here. So glad to be
8: here. So a bit of good news on what was a bad news week. Absolutely. You know, this was a report we were expecting. It was a report that had been commissioned by our Councillor way back in May. It made its way through the process, even though we'd already been meeting with the City hoping to find a solution. But long story short, we uh, hoped that the Parks Committee would at least take this report as information only, and then give the administration a mandate to look for a long-term solution. Because so far, we've heard about the problems. We've learned more about what those problems are. But at the end of the day, we feel this is still a serviceable facility, and that if the administration had the green light to invest more in it for not just a fix year-to-year, but a long-term solution, we're confident we're going to get there.
3: Not just Norwood's pool. I mean, I I live south of the city, and I've used pools all over Winnipeg um, for, for my kids because you just visit and try different things. So it's in a community, but a lot of people tell me a bit about what
8: the community feels about this pool. And You know, we've heard some fantastic stories, as Greg mentioned. You know, I think a community pool is associated to our summer memories going way back. If you have one in your neighborhood or you went to one when you were a child, that's the case for hundreds of people who have put lawn signs in their yard, who have joined our Facebook page. And what's beautiful about the Norwood Pool, and people have said this on our Facebook pages, you know, it's about diversity, it's about community building. There's a vibe in that pool, which is fantastic, because there are not many amenities where you see toddlers, children, teens, and seniors all interacting together, hanging out, playing. Uh, it's a mobility issue. It's a drowning issue with people practicing saving skills. It's getting kids uh, off the couch and outside. Like It hits so many boxes that you know that community pools have to re-become a priority. And I think we've really forgotten that over the past few years.
2: And I know we've been talking about this and it's been in the news But there may be a misunderstanding or maybe a lack of knowledge of exactly where this pool is. Because I think a lot of people imagine that it's a pool along Goulet
8: near Marion, right? right. Where is Norwood Pool? Okay, so Happyland Pool is the one that's on Marion Street near Archibald. Norwood Pool is nestled kind of behind, uh, just near the Norwood Bridge, behind St. Mary's Road. And it's by the, the rowing club, right by the river. And frankly, one of the reasons the water table is an issue there is... Is that It's in a depression that we call the flood bowl. So back in the 50s, they created a big dike uh, d- during the 1950 flood to protect Norwood. And the ground they used, it used to be a little golf course, they dug out a bowl and it has become a recreation space ever since then. So we built a pool in there. It's been serving the community. It has issues like many others, but it doesn't just serve the Norwood community. People come from Osborne Village, Fort Rouge, downtown. These are people who don't have access to a cottage, to the beach. There's a fairness aspect here, and it's close to transit. We know people come to this pool from River Heights, St. James, and they've written messages on our Facebook page that says, save our pool. So people belong at the Norwood Pool, whether they live in St. James, uh, St. Vital, or Norwood itself.
0: Yeah, I remember going to uh, Kinsman Centennial. I grew up in Transcona. And many summers, I was there every day, oh, every I day. That. I had I, My whole life, I've been chasing after the tan that I used to get, <laughs> the golden brown tan that I used to get when I spent all my days at that pool. And I really can't imagine what my childhood would have been like without it.
8: And you know, that, that's the thing. This is a well-used facility. I think it might be different if no one went and, you know, there was a committee of five people who said, please, we don't want to lose this. I mean, this is a visceral issue in Norwood because people go, they use it, they love it. and it's a multi-generational facility. Splash pads don't do that.
3: But at the end of the day, they need money to stay afloat. They do. No pun intended. And what is the cost, first of all, for repairing? And if if they're going to keep this pool, what's it going to cost the city taxpayers? And longer term, how do you keep that funding going? Because there's a shortage of it everywhere for community
8: centers, pools and rings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The infrastructure deficit for recreation, we're aware of that. And I think that's been our approach with the city is saying, look, we're not just standing there with a sign saying we want our pool. We're literally working with them. We've been reading policies, meeting engineers, uh, contacting the province, doing our homework so we can really be partners in this and help find solutions that they may not have had the mandate or the time or to invest in. So in terms of cash, uh, we know the report this week said $1.3 million to close it and replace it with amenities the community does not want. So we're saying, okay, well, let's look at about a million dollars. We've talked to the federal government who've said, we'd give you money if you had a project to come to the table with. We know the community wants to raise funds among our community as fundraising initiatives. So we're saying to the city, what if it costs a million dollars, but you don't have to spend the entire part of it? What if we have partners and we'll help you find them? And then at the end of the day, this could even be a model that might be as uh, serviceable for other uh, communities down the line who may also face the chopping block. But potentially some private
3: investment because I think at the end of the day that it's sure. only so much public dollars to go around.
8: Absolutely. And and I think, you know, um, much has been said about the fact that St. Boniface is over-serviced by outdoor pools because we happen to have four out of ten in our ward. And what we say is, you know, why should we be penalized if our forefathers, the St. Boniface City Council, back when it was its own city, uh, had held pools in a high priority. Recreation was a big deal back then in the 60s. It continues to draw families to our neighbourhood. It's one of the few amenities we have to offer up to uh, people who could choose the suburbs, but we want them to choose an inner-city, mature neighbourhood with ageing housing stock and aging recreation facilities. So we say, you know, one by one, we need to find a model to start retrofitting and repairing these uh, amenities so that we can say in another 50 years, look how progressive City Council was to make sure that people can continue to build memories during the summers at the community pool.
2: Aging doesn't have to mean obsolete.
8: Absolutely, and you know the city's been saying that from the very beginning. Their their term was it's come to the end of their useful life, and our main question has been what does that mean? Like, how do you determine that it's unserviceable? Even the water table issue and the pressure, the hydro pressure, or hydrostatic pressure against the pool because of rising water table. In terms of a structural issue, there has been no report to substantiate that there is any issue structurally. So it's all kind of anecdotal, and we just imagine that it must be terrible. We don't know. So we're saying before we start shuttering places and closing down facilities that are much loved and potentially s- serviceable still for many years, we need to look into it.
0: Monique, uh, when this water does leach into the pool, like, does it change the, 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 the appearance of the water as though there was of fouling
8: right and so um every year the province heads out to all city pools and uh you know it it checks the ph level the the water quality in terms of turbidity as well because that's a safety issue uh, if someone were to fall to the bottom of the pool they need to be able to have water clarity for safety reasons um, but we've obtained all the um, reports the water assessment reports from the province for the past three years and there has been actually I think five years and there's been an improvement because the city has made repairs along the way and now we're talking about uh, a perfectly serviceable pool that meets all of the requirements And so there's no risk of not obtaining a permit for safety reasons.
0: All right, Monique Lacoste, Chairwoman of Save Norwood Pool Committee. Thank you so much for joining us today. We very much appreciate the visit.
8: Thanks very much.
0: Ackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB and Loren, when tragedy strikes, catastrophic flood, devastating house fire, the first thought for those who managed to survive it, the first reaction is often, I am grateful to be alive.
3: Yeah, and that was certainly the case for the people in this next story. Uh, they were one of 24 families forced out of their homes after a fire tore through a three-story apartment complex in Southdale. It was that fire on Beaver Hill last month. Fire officials still don't know what caused that fire, but for this mum and dad that we spoke to, that isn't their only lingering question. We visited them this week to see how they're moving on.
4: Having a safe place to live laughter in our home providing on a plain
3: piece of laminated paper hanging from their fridge is a list of family values Leon Carion and her partner Tony created together and then
4: we just kind of keep it up here as a reminder
3: it is one of the few things they were able to pull from a fire that nearly took their lives and the lives of the six kids they share almost three weeks ago
4: we all could have died we wouldn't have made it had it not been for the two little ones waking us up that morning
3: It wasn't the sound of crackling wood that woke two of their youngest in the early morning hours of August 26th. It was the smoke alarm in the hallway, piercing at 5am, an hour they still can't forget.
4: We haven't been sleeping, like we wake up the exact same time that we were woken up. The kids are scared to sleep in their bedroom. They want to sleep in the living room in case the fire alarm goes off.
3: Twenty-four families were left homeless that night. Many, like Leanne and Tony, didn't have insurance. They won't make that mistake twice. Actually, we're going in to today. today so, <laughs>
7: um, the insurance we're not playing with. And.
3: As he holds his two-month-old daughter, he explains how grateful they are for the strangers who donated food and clothes, and to the Red Cross who helped them find a new place to live.
7: This is the exact same layout.
3: The new suite is just one apartment block over from their old one. On their balcony, you can still smell the smoke.
7: It's traumatizing thinking of what happened, could happen again. But it's just the fact of having a place to call home, being in the catchment, keeping their routine, that was the first
3: first priority. Last week, they returned to their old place to salvage what they could. That shelf are you taking? The couple captured video of what was left. The sky blue overhead.
4: This is our hallway,
3: no more ceiling. The roof is gone along with almost everything else. Everything except that list of family values.
4: Laughter in our home, providing for all my children's basic needs and having fun together as a family. And each other. Don't trust that it can't happen to you, because it can. Um, don't, take, you know, don't take anything for granted. Um, and honestly, don't waste your time that you have with your family.
3: So they don't have a ton in that three-bedroom apartment that they managed to get, um, but they do have everything they need. And one of the last questions I had for them was before I go, I said, you know, if people want to help you out or get donations to you, or if you do you need anything else. And they said, you know what, we're, we're back on our feet in the sense of we got some clothes and we've got some dishes and we have a place to stay. And what uh, Tony said, the dad there, he said, if anyone wants to do anything, give to the Red Cross. Wow. One, one thing they learned After the fire was that the Red Cross steps can step in and help out. They don't get you the housing, but they might help out with, you know, the clothing and and that the couple nights in a hotel room just so you can get going. And and I thought that was a fascinating response, right? He's only three weeks, clearly some post-traumatic stress there. And his first thought was, we're good now pay it forward.
2: We had a gentleman reach out to us about two years ago, Brett, when we were doing the afternoon show, who lost his home to fire in the West End. He didn't know where to turn. I didn't know where to send him, but within a handful of hours, we realized that the Red Cross was the place for him to go because of his lack of resources, his lack of insurance and the situation he was in, and he very quickly... Uh, We heard back from him, and within a couple of weeks, he got back on his feet and was just so thankful for that first 48 to 72 hours of having someone have his back and for so many we're so resilient as human beings for so many it's just that little bit of help that we need just to get back on track and you don't
3: pause and think about how often it can happen just this morning a West St. Paul home may have been struck by lightning a fire was started there possibly from that storm another family now going through the same thing again so for all of us to think about this morning where can we help that might be a place to start
0: Right now, Greg, we want to go to Humboldt and just watching the highlights this morning, seeing the the coverage from TSN. While we were doing segments, just looked up and I saw them rolling, unrolling, unfurling some of the banners for the the young men who died in that crash, and I uh, had to look away because I just suddenly felt a little little overwhelmed with emotion. I didn't have the opportunity to watch. Of the broadcast last night, Mm -hmm. so seeing the highlights uh, was quite powerful.
2: Yeah, well, I'm trying not to make eye contact with either of you guys right now because it's, um, as a dad, uh, I mentioned this earlier when we kicked off at uh, just after six o'clock this morning. Uh, Scott Thomas, uh, whose son Evan was one of the victims in that crash, uh, spoke eloquently so beautifully in front of 1900 or so people in the arena and really speaking to the entire country last night and and to an extension uh, lots of people around the world and to stand and to deliver the message that he did never mind the eloquence the deliberation but to be so thankful You've lost your son. You had to bury your son and and his friends, and so many uh, of the people that were important in his life his coach, his trainer, the broad, like the people impacted by this. And that was what stuck out for me the most was the gratefulness and how Scott Thomas began his remarks with thanking everyone involved in what has been a horrific situation for five months. Here's what he had to say last night.
9: I've been asked tonight to speak on behalf of the 29 families and give thanks. When the Broncos called on Monday night, it was one of the easiest decisions I ever made, the opportunity to come here tonight and give thanks. There are so many people that we wish to acknowledge. We want to acknowledge a community of Humboldt, If you're a player, coach, athletic therapist, a bus driver, statistician, a radio guy, if you're a billet, a local business owner, a board member, if you served on an honour guard, if you're a volunteer, a season ticket holder, or a fan, we say thank you. We want to acknowledge the province of Saskatchewan and the wonderful country of Canada. If you're a first responder, if you're in one of the hospitals that horrible night, if you gave to the GoFundMe or a scholarship fund, if you sewed a quilt, sent a picture or a message, if you cooked a meal, painted a picture, if you made jewelry, if you signed an organ donor card, or if you're one of the good Samaritans taking care of the accident site, and keeping it beautiful for our boys and Dana we say thank you we want to acknowledge the rest of North America and indeed the whole world if you organized a golf tournament created a benefit concert a hockey game or a football game if you left a stick out by the door if you wrote a song if you made a card Assigned a banner to school, if you created a decal or clothing, if you sat and prayed, or if you simply sat with us and cried. We say thank you. We want to acknowledge the hockey community. I've quoted Fred Shiro before. Hockey is where we live where we can best meet and overcome our pain and wrong and deaths. Life is just a place where we spend time between games. Well, folks, from that I maintain that from that flows hockey is indeed family. Well, we have a new hockey family of 29 now and we're going to be family for the rest of our time on this earth. And we want to all thank the hockey families of Colonsay, Lethbridge, Tisdale, Allen, Winnipeg, Momart, Stony Plain, St. Albert, Olds, Airdrie, Slave Lake, Edmonton, La Ronge, Leduc, Peace River, Strasburg, Lake Lenore, Carrot River, Fort McMurray, Saskatoon, and of course Humboldt. To all of those families, we say thank you. Finally, in closing, on behalf of all our sons and daughters, our fathers, brothers, and sisters, our nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, and uncles, we want to thank everyone in this building tonight and everyone at home watching on TV. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Oh, wow. Um, the far reaching impact of this tragedy as. Scott Thomas read off that list of communities and you couldn't help. I I mean, you just hear him say Winnipeg and it, it, it got to me. I was at the Jets Blackhawks game the following night, the night after, uh, the, the crash and the the Blackhawks and the Jets joined in solidarity at center ice. They all wore Broncos name bars on their jerseys. I thought they were just going to do it for the pregame skate. They did it for the entire game. And they stood in unison and that hockey family that Scott Thomas spoke about was on display. And um, yeah, it's just unimaginable what these families have been through. But Loren, the good, if I may say it, that's come out of this tragedy, I think is going to be far reaching and a tremendous legacy for these lives lost.
3: Well, there's a dad who will never hug his son again. And last night, uh, Opened his arms and basically gave a, a virtual hug to that entire rink and anybody who was watching. You I, I stayed up late to watch it because I couldn't go to bed. I wanted to see it. And I, I think that the thing that struck me so much repeatedly through this story for the, that that town is just how beautifully they've reacted. And I use beautiful in the sense because I don't think I could be that gracious. And and to think of all the people he listed off and and I was nodding last night, like, right, like think about the people in the hospital who will never forget that day and the first responders who would have pulled up on that scene and thought wow oh my god these children would have might, have might have known some of those kids sure and and then they stood there last night stoically trying to hold it together you know the firefighters and the police and, and the kids then at the end of the day had finished a hockey game and played wonderfully and only at the very end did i see two of the current players finally let themselves break down and i thought Oh, I, I, if you could say well done in a terrible moment, well done, humbled.
2: And uh, you mentioned the first responders, Loren, the first responders, uh, two for each banner as they were unfurled and their their tragedy, their personal demons and what they're going to have to deal with, obviously uh, something they'll carry with, but being acknowledged, uh, obviously with their presence and their prominence in last night's uh, events. A text message from Trish at 204
0: 780 6868. Your show seems to make me feel every emotion known. And I want to thank you for showing some emotion in a world where there seems to be only hate and anger. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on 680 CJOB. Yesterday on this radio station, we focused some discussion on two stories out of the United States pertaining to changing rules for kids in school. On the start, we focused on this charter school in Hepzibah, Georgia, where they are bringing back the paddle for disciplinary purposes was the question of the morning at CJOB.com. And the question read, A school in Georgia is bringing back the paddle for discipline. Are they nuts? Now, the answers to start were, Yes, that's how it was in my day. And no, there's no excuse to hurt a child. Now, initially, the yes vote had it. Uh, but thanks to one of our eagle-eyed listeners, Farm Tech Brad. We changed the answers a bit because they were askew. It should have been, no, that's how it was in my day. And yes, there's no excuse to hurt a child. Sometimes we do, uh, I'll fall on the sword for that one. Sometimes we do things hastily, we're busy in the morning and we didn't, it made its way through quality control and It sounded whoops. right. Yeah. It
3: At sounded, 7 a.m. it sounded
0: great. I think the spirit of the, the answer was fairly uh, visible, but uh, Brad caught it. So ultimately, yes, they are nuts. There is no excuse to hurt a child won by a slim margin, 54% to 46 So remember where it was looking like the paddle would win the day? Well, the paddle lost. So now... My
3: faith in humanity has been restored as a result eight
2: of the percentage points? of the day.
3: Hey, <laughs> that is what you call a majority in any situation. And it's really only
2: four, because if four... <laughs> Percentage points would have gone the other way and it would have been 50-50. So it's yeah, not really even. it's actually 4. Okay, well, you know,
3: what? still over half, okay. over half. Uh,
2: I, hey, you're an optimist and I, I, I dig is Isn't dig
3: that it. how uh, votes and plebiscites and all the rest work? Dare I dare I go down that? Don't my, use okay. the word
2: plebiscite right now, all please.
3: Right, moving okay. on, Brett.
0: Now here's the other story about kids in school <laughs> in the United States. Moving to Wisconsin to talk about yoga pants Yesterday on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, they set it up with this report from WISN-ABC Milwaukee's
10: Nick Boer. For as long as they've been in fashion, yoga pants have challenged concepts of appropriateness.
7: If they're going to wear them, just keep it covered. That's my opinion on it. That's what I tell my daughter, you know,
3: wear a longer shirt so all that's covered.
10: Katherine Cotto is a parent of a Kenosha Bradford student and until last spring, the pants were banned in school when a group of parents and students got the district to change course.
3: It doesn't make sense to limit expression through clothing that targets a specific gender.
10: Osma Kadri Keeler with the ACLU of Wisconsin has been closely watching the issue and says although Kenosha rescinded its ban on yoga pants, leggings and tank tops, it's still being selectively enforced, including a case this summer at Kenosha Tremper in which a girl was twice sent home from summer school.
3: We can talk about items of clothing and we can talk about decency and all that, but the bigger picture is that girls are being pulled out of class and losing access to education at a rate that boys aren't, and that's a bigger problem.
10: And parents like Catherine say ultimately it should be their decision.
3: If the parents say it's okay for their daughter to go out like that, then that's fine, you know, but...
10: You don't feel it should be the school that decides what people should be wearing?
3: The
4: school should not decide. Okay, we know what some parents and what the ACLU said, but Nick, what did the Kenosha School District say?
10: Nothing, uh, despite repeated attempts. But they're not the only school district dealing with this. Wauwatosa just last month rescinded their ban on yoga pants and leggings and other clothing items, saying that that should be a decision for parents and students.
0: So Julie went on to say she had a rule to follow. In school,
7: back in my day, we mm. were told uh, by the principal if they give you a coin and you put it in your back pocket and they could see the outline, then your pants were too tight. Uh spaghetti straps, I think, are still a no-no in many uh, Manitoba schools. Also, we there's a, a sign that some people are getting made up, and some families subscribe to this. It says, "Put your hands up and then touch your toes. If anything shows, go change your clothes." Yeah. So your hands up. Right. To see if, if you're revealing your midriff, or bend crack. over and touch toes.
11: You see crack.
7: Then you're changing your clothes. Right.
0: Then Rich and Julie had a little debate about it.
11: Sometimes, unfortunately, teachers, vice principals, and parents have to step in because the parents don't know how to parent their kids. And they leave it to the school system. And I think that there is generally at most schools, I think all schools have code of conducts, And I remember it being sent home, and I still talk to parents and teachers, that there is a code of conduct that you have to adhere to. And part of that, and I'm not talking about school uniforms, I'm not talking about you have to dress conservatively, but on the other hand, you can't dress provocatively.
7: What's a a spaghetti strap going to do?
11: Well, on a a very hot June day, I don't have a problem with that as long as it's done uh, tastefully. But I'll tell you, if there's a if there's more skin than clothing showing, I may have a problem with that. I think it might be a distraction in the classroom.
7: A distraction for who?
11: Uh, for a lot of people, like I'm, I'm talking teenagers, you Julie, raging you hormones. Can't
7: worry about how you dress being a problem for someone else. That's their problem.
11: But if you're talking twelve and thirteen and fourteen year olds, are you supposed Parents to? Parents
7: gotta parent parents got a parent
11: yes but in the lieu of parents not parenting unfortunately it's up to the school system to have to deal with it Julie like really do you disagree with me on this I I, can't
7: believe it yeah I do actually are you are you against the yoga pants no I'm not against the yoga pants yeah but what do you draw and then then there's the shirts with the sayings I'm sure I'm sorry if you're
11: showing midriff if you're showing belly button at school I'm sorry I'm but, sorry, so go So you going to be the
7: fashion police handing out the tickets.
11: Yeah, in the lieu of parents not parenting, I will be what that about, fashion police officer. What about the
7: boys with their, with their pants at their knees?
11: Pull up your pants. You know what? If it sags, it has no belonging in our schools. I don't mind. You got long hair, you got earrings, you got tattoos. That's fine. But if I can see crack, you're out of here.
0: All right, then. McNabb, what do you think? Should uh, the just based on what Kluche just said there, midriff, belly button? In well, school. the problem
3: with all that is it all comes back to the woman or the teenage girl all the time, right? And it's, it's suddenly always incumbent on the woman to make sure we're not doing anything that could offend somebody or tant- tantalize some I don't know. I don't. I don't like that as an overall message. And I know what he was saying was more just the idea of dress appropriately, but I, I think there's a conversation to be had about, look, adults, boys, men, everybody who might Google or not like that need to think about why they're distracted by that. Take care of yourself. But there probably is a line that we can't, we shouldn't be crossing all the time when we're in school.
2: Well, it's code of conduct and there's a uniform code. And even when I was in school for guys, your shorts had to be a certain length and for girls, it was the same. And um, I agree with you, Loren, what I have in retrospect a problem with With those policies, that it was seemed to be inherent upon the young woman or the girls to cover up to save the boys from themselves and to save the girls from the boys. That's a bunch of baloney. We know that now, and we need to teach our boys and our young men to be respectful of women regardless of what they're wearing because they have the right to wear whatever the heck they want.
3: It's like when uh, Kim Campbell came out a few months ago and said TV anchors should stop wearing sleeveless Yeah, you got in a tip with her, right? Because it's just... You know, because we're distracting. So this is back when I was in television and I was like, that's distracting. I mean, there there is a level of distraction for sure in clothing choices, but I do not like the idea and the messaging that the woman has to be in control of that all the time. You should be in control. Take care of yourself.
2: Now, two things I'm going to say, and one might make me sound like a hypocrite. One is uh, for a manager, a former manager in a restaurant who often had to go to women who were my peers and say, um... What you're wearing tonight in the restaurant isn't appropriate that was always a difficult conversation because we had lines within the business that you could not cross, even though customers might've liked it. If you can understand where I'm going through and coming from on that and where my kids go to school, they wear a uniform and I am 100% yeah. an advocate for uniforms in school and take all of this discussion off the table because part of it is absolutely ridiculous. And the whole idea of a uniform, if you don't have kids that are in a uniform, Um, it's the best thing ever.
3: I do like a dress code and the the uniform takes away so many things. Not just the appropriateness of what someone's wearing, but the whole who has the coolest this and that and now we got to spend money or the families, myself included, wouldn't have money for the has to be the Under Armour backpack now yep. or whatever the nonsense well, is. Well, the
2: backpack, they still need the pack. backpack. Well, There's no, no just, name backpacks I, I, it, Okay, going fine.
3: But it takes away the idea of um, competition and all the things that already make school hard. Code of conduct is great. I think a dress code isn't the worst thing, but it, it's not all about just...
2: The code of conduct has to go above the dress code, though, and respecting one another and respecting each other's boundaries. Yeah. That has to go Way above the dress code. Text messages here, a couple of them.
0: One of them is directed at Richard. Hey, Richard, with you on this one. Having taught for 30 years in high school, Julie would be surprised at what comes through the doors. Tyson, meanwhile, says a teenage girl could wear a parka and it would still be distracting to a teenage boy. And that's where I'm going to come at this from that sort of perspective. Thinking as I would have when I was a teenager in school... I would have no problem with the belly button shirts uh because boys are going to look regardless and in one sense it might be good for the boys to be exposed to that so that they can learn to control themselves and learn to be still be proper gentlemen in spite of the fact that they are distracted
2: by if the the girls happen to be wearing something that they like to see absolutely workplaces have a dress code and Let's be honest. Do uh, you remember Casual Fridays?
4: Mm-hmm. Goes kay. too far. I okay, for sure. Casual
2: Fridays. Uh, the parents of kids in school are the same people who don't know how to dress on casual Friday. So uh, this is this has got a much larger issue and a lot larger reason behind it as to why people allow their kids to walk out the door inappropriately dressed. The, the reason might be up for debate, or maybe there is no debate about the reason is why it's inappropriate. Uh, but in terms of uh, doing the right thing, We've got a long way to go.
3: And if I could ban one thing, short shorts. And I don't care if you're man, woman, old, tall, young, big, small. I don't. The short shorts can go for everyone.
0: I guess you weren't a fan of the NBA in what was it, the 1970s and early 1980s? That's
3: a <laughs> I'm talking. I'm walking down the street and I'm seeing cheek and I don't mean your grin. Ah. I don't need that.